We're sisters, best friends, and authors on a mission to help you stoke your creative fire and live the life of your dreams. We believe that purpose fuels passion and that creativity is your secret weapon for mass construction. There's never been a better time to bless the world with your dream realized. You're listening to The Kate and Abby Show. What's up, guys? Welcome back to The Kate and Abby Show. This is episode 12, and it's a bit of a special episode this time because we are answering your questions, which came in on the community on my YouTube channel, I posted a, I put up a post um, asking for questions from writers and anybody out there following my channel. Um, anything that you wanted to ask me and Kate, particularly about writing. And we got a ton of questions in on that post, like over 100 questions, <laughs> comments rather, if there's multiple questions in a lot of the comments. So we're going to start answering them in this episode. And um, going into the future, we're going to have some more episodes uh, answering a lot of the questions that came in. So this can this is going to span more than one episode. Um, so if your question doesn't get answered in this episode, never fear. It might be the next episode that we answered it. So um, yeah, a lot of great questions came in, and I'm excited to get to those questions. Yeah, loads of good questions. Stoked to dig into them. So let's get let's get started. Yeah. So the first one that came in, and this is not in chronological order, but this is, I think, ranked by like how many likes they got. That's what these numbers mean. I printed, oh, okay. I printed them I off for those convenience, so I'm trying to like get the most relevant ones that everybody's wondering about. Gotcha. In addition, um, so the first one, which I will kind of, I thought we could like read them back and forth to each other and like not particularly yeah. directed, but like you can start first and then like I'll chime in or whatever um, for either or for every other question. <laughs> okay, let's just go. So the first question, which I will direct at you to take on first, is how to plant clues in a story. And there's two questions in this comment, actually. But and somebody, um, somebody commented after them with something that was very similar of how to hide a villain in plain sight. And I feel like those two things are really related. How to plant clues and how to hide a villain in plain sight. And if anybody has read the Blood Race trilogy, I mean, Kate is like a master at this and she proves it with that series. So why don't you um, grab that? <laughs> yeah, well... I think that, yeah, if you, if you have a villain and you're like, okay, I know this villain's going to be revealed at some point, um, one of the best ways, I think, to just naturally allow, I think what will naturally allow you to write clues into the book is just you knowing what's going to happen, you knowing who the villain is, you knowing how kind of at least having a little bit of an inkling of how that's going to play out, because then you're, you're going to write it differently knowing it yourself. Mm -hmm. So um, if you know like, oh, this character is going to find out that, you know, that's really the person who did that um, chapters and chapters from now, if you already know that on chapter two that you're writing, you're going to be writing that interaction differently knowing that, okay, this character is going to find that out, that this person is villainous, you know, that this is the villain of the story. So just having that knowledge 
And it's not even like you need to plant some big clues that are spectacular. Um, I mean, yeah, you can, but it's more the little nuanced things, maybe how they would not make eye contact with the person or how they would um, phrase things more carefully or how they would act kind of like shifty and paranoid, maybe. The things that make you think something about this character and this interaction is off. Something is standing out to me about how this character is behaving. So I think it's those little things that you as the writer add in just from the sheer fact that you know, okay, this is the villain. This is going to be revealed. If you already have that piece of the story worked out in your mind, you're going to automatically be writing it differently. You're going to automatically be writing little clues into the story. Um, and, and that's kind of, yeah, I mean, they will be hidden in plain sight. That's kind of the beauty of it is these little nuances are the things that hide in plain sight. It's not like the big, like, oh, that person said, you know, <laughs> I saw that person running away in a black cloak in the middle of the night. I wonder if there's anything going on with them. It's like, it won't be something like that. It's going to be very nuanced, small things that the reader might not even pick up on all of them, but that's the beauty of, I've had so many of my readers be like, oh, I saw so many like extra things when I reread the book that I didn't see before knowing like who the villain turned out to be. Yeah. And I was just reading, it's funny that you say that because I was just reading um, a really interesting article about the cognitive science of plot twists and how after a plot twist is revealed, which I'm going to be talking about plot twists very soon on my channel, by the way, I was just filming videos about that. But um, how after a plot twist is revealed, the reader or the audience will get like so much satisfaction out of going back and seeing the clues that mm. were hidden in plain sight. And I think another another thing about hiding clues that you uh, touched on just now is um, having writing these things in that are clues, but not bringing too much attention to them. Mm. Like they just kind of go by. Yeah, and I feel the protagonist like you're the, are you doesn't thinking, really notice. Are you them. thinking about a specific example? Because I'm thinking about a very specific example as you're saying this that matches it perfectly, and I feel like you're thinking of it too. What is it? What is the, the one you're thinking of? I wasn't thinking of it. Really? Either. Okay, I was yeah. totally thinking of a beautiful mind. Oh, yeah. Like they carry that off so well, and it's not even necessarily about a villain, but it's about like the main plot. And how they plant clues in the beginning. And it's insane when you rewatch it. And you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't notice that. Yeah. Like, that's a great example. Yeah. So when you plant clues and the protagonist, like, sees them go by, but they don't, like, really notice them. So you don't, like, bring the focus to them. Like you were just saying, it's not like oh, that's weird. I wonder why they said that. Because now it makes the reader be like, oh, is there more to that? Right. And then it kind of takes away this from the satisfaction of later being like, oh my gosh, I missed that. I can't believe I missed that because the protagonist right. missed it too, pretty right. much. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and body language is a great, great way to plant those clues. Mm. Like you said about like them being shifty-eyed or just acting weird. Just body language is, is such a valuable tool to use when writing that. Mm. Yeah. And hiding a villain. Right. 100%. All right, next question, which is the best way to handle two protagonists in one novel? And I feel like this is a great question for you to answer because 100 Days of Sunlight has two mm. protagonists. So. Yeah, I love writing dual protagonists, dual point of views. Mm. Honestly, like, it's it's my favorite thing. And it's it's funny because every time I try to write... <laughs> 
a novel with just one point of view, I like end up doing multiples. Yeah. Like last time. I, it's hard to go back. Yeah, when, Once is. you've made the switch, it's hard to go back, I think. It is. It is. Um, but the best way, I mean, that's kind of a vague question, but I would say uh, first I, I, I do have a video on writing dual point of views, which I highly recommend, by the way. But um, really getting into both sides of the story because with two protagonists, you have the opportunity to look at a story from two totally different, totally unique perspectives, which is what I think is the coolest thing about writing dual point of views is that you can approach usually the same things happening because usually the two protagonists are in the, the same world, the same, they're, they have a relationship with each other. Um, but you can write it from two different perspectives. And so people are, these two people are perceiving the events that are happening and everybody else around them completely different from each other. And to really like play on that contrast so that it's more memorable and it's more engaging and dynamic and complex. Because otherwise, if it's, if you're following two characters, but they both kind of have the same way of looking at things and seeing things, it's going to get kind of hard to distinguish their voices. And also it won't like really add anything to your novel. In my opinion, the thing that really adds to a story is being able to have these two really dynamic points of view. And they don't have to be totally opposite each other, but they do have to show you each character should show you something that the other character can't show you, mm. I think. Yeah. Which you write a lot of multiple point of views. So what's your take on that? Well, I, I totally agree with you that um, everyone's unique. And like if you talk to two people that listen to the same conversation and you're like, oh, hey, what did you get out of that conversation? And they tell you what they saw in it. And then you ask the other person and they're gonna t- they're not going to tell you the exact same thing the other person did because everyone really perceives the conversation um, subjectively. Mm-hmm. And so everyone has a different opinion, a different lens that they're viewing something through, which is something I like value in um, stories like, for example, the uh, YA book Flipped, how uh, that's a dueling point of view book between two characters and it covers a lot of the same events that both of the characters are at. And they really, sometimes the conversation that's being that's being um that's kind of happening in front of them it sounds completely different based on the point of view you're reading like even some of the things that are said are said differently and at first I was like well that's weird because the in in the other point of view that wasn't even said but it's almost like it's a perception thing Mm. people will hear like kind of what they want to hear so if someone has a certain like attitude towards a thing they're going to receive it completely differently than the other character who's viewing it through a completely different lens. So if you can really nail that character voice and like kind of like really get in their shoes and see things through their eyes, it's going to sound different. And I think that's a big component is having the voices sound distinct. Yeah, for sure. And as far as like the best way to handle two protagonists, I mean... On one hand, if it's like a third person story, just working on like making sure... Like I said, the voices of the two protagonists are super distinct and strong characters that can hold their own or just write it from dual point of views because to me that's like such a cool way for you to like just step right into the skin of that character and not even have to think about like as a narrator just making those distinctions um, as much as you are just stepping into two separate 
uh, entities, if that yeah. makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and some stories will be um, like, you couldn't do it any other way but to have two protagonists. Right. Like, I'm thinking about like with 100 Days of Sunlight. Like if that was all from Tessa's point of view. <laughs> exactly. Like, you would, mm-hmm. it would have none of the intrigue and it would just be so different. And in my opinion, like bland and boring because you wouldn't know what's really going on. Right. With Weston. And so if you all, if you saw everything from Tessa's point of view, it would be like, you don't really know what's going on until the very end of the book, until right. like the last page. Yeah. You really need. <laughs> so you need the two perspectives. Yeah. Exactly. Or else there's really, in that case, there's like almost no story. Exactly. Because the story is really about their friendship and their respective, um, uh, the respective adversities that they're covering, that they're being, that they're working their way through. And if you don't have West inside of the story, it's kind of like you're just following. I can't even imagine. Like, I don't yeah. even want to think you're really about just, what it would be without Weston. <laughs> you're just following <laughs> the adversity that Tess is facing only. Yeah, exactly. And you don't get to see the broader picture. Exactly. Yeah. So, I think that's a good um, answer. Yeah. Um, so uh, next question is, um, let's see, there was a few that were like specifically great to ask you, Katie. Um, this, this was a good one here. Yeah. Is it possible to write and publish a book that has the same storyline as a book that is already out? For example, books about historic events or the college experience. When does having the same storyline as another writer become copying? It doesn't ever. Mm. <laughs> For something as broad as that, yeah. like the someone going to college, <laughs> I mean... There's so many there's, books on that. There's millions of books about this, and none of them are copying each other. Also, historical events, like, oh, I want to write a book about, you know, a character that lives during the Re- Revolutionary War. Okay, well, thousands and thousands of people have done that. So it's not really copying, because you're bringing your own unique... To perspective to it it's never going to be the same thing unless you're literally plagiarizing someone else's work which is not going to be the case here obviously yeah um if you're just writing a book and you're like oh i'm concerned that this is going to be too similar to you know x y and z yeah it probably is and there's like lots of stories that yeah. are similar to each other but it has nothing to do with that pretty much like i remember listening to i think it was um i want to say it was ron howard's trailer for his master class and he says something like, there's really only five stories or seven stories. It was five or seven. It was like a really low number. And it's like, because, yeah, they're, they're like kind of all the same thing. Like, I mean, it, a lot of the storylines are all the same. Yeah, look at the three-act story structure. Exactly. So, I mean, you have all these similarities. <laughs> it applies to like almost every story I've seen. Yeah, exactly. Every like good, well-structured story. But that being said, it's it's probably also a good idea to ask yourself, uh, where is the uniqueness What's different? Like, where can I find something different and unique in this? Like, a book about the college experience or a book about the Revolutionary War. That's actually a great subject. Let's say it's the Revolutionary War. Where is something that's maybe a lesser-known event um, that not many people know about, something that's unique and I can really express my creativity freely in this event or this premise, um, and not feel like I'm just writing a copy of something else that's been written over and over again. So right. finding things, I think that will just make it more interesting for you as the writer. Yeah, 100%. 
And like, that's a great question to ask yourself. But like, don't ask yourself it like too hardcore because yeah. like then if you get into like a mental paralysis, yeah. and you're like, oh my god, I can't find what's special about it. I can't find what's special yeah, about it. Like, just, terrible. That's a terrible question. Honestly, like, just don't worry about it. Like, I think people take their writing way too seriously most yeah. of the time. Like, yeah. and I feel like a lot of people have talked to you about that. Like, you know, being really like, yeah, afraid to move forward. Just like, yeah, you're just overthinking it. Write it. You're however, just it. it's just it's better to just write it ugly and scared and to not write it at ugly all. Ugly and scared. Ugly and scared. And yeah. just, I always say write ugly because it's like, don't worry about all these little components. The beauty is in the ugliness, quotes, ugly, air quotes, ugliness, because just stop like taking it so seriously. Just let it be a mess and be okay with that. And that's really where the gems are going to come out. Yeah. The gems are going to come out when you're not like in this paralysis over like oh is it good enough is have i plotted enough how, just just write it just write mm-hmm. it and then figure it out later i think a lot of people do get apprehensive when they think about like oh, what makes my story unique right. from uh, other stories and then if you like keep asking yourself that question it finally comes down to uh pretty much nothing exactly. because if you take every like part of this story like out of the whole you can find another story with that element you know what i mean right but um, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you have to kind of create your own thing and then just write it. Don't overthink it. Just it's going to be unique because yeah. it's being uh, told through your voice. Yeah. And everyone is u- as unique as, you know, their thumbprint. Yeah. So it's going to be, it's going to have uniqueness. And even if you feel like, oh, well, it's similar to something, well, everything is similar to something. I like, think about that. that. Like, everything is similar yeah. to something. So there you go. Stop worrying about it. <laughs> I always think about that with like food. Like imagine if if like chefs out there in the world were like, well, I can't make, you know, uh, some type of dish because other people make this same thing. Right. Like, well, how can you put your own unique spin on it? Yeah. Because yeah, there's going to be millions of other chefs making this exact dish, but how can you make it unique for your art? So. Yeah, that's a, that's a great analogy, yeah. and and you know, guess like, what? Like, imagine if pe- people did that about pizza, and like everyone's like, yeah, everyone oh, someone already pizza, did that, and then so. everyone stopped making pizza. That would be really, really depressing. Yeah. So like, don't like, do that. Imagine how dark the world would be without pizza, or if only one place made pizza. Because yeah, like it'd be lame. Like we we, we want a variety. Places. We want a variety, mm-hmm. and we don't care that it's all pizza. We are totally okay with having multiple different kinds of pizza. Look at the romance genre. It's like one of the biggest, like best-selling genres of all time. Like the audience for the romance genre is massive. It's as big as the audience for pizza. Yeah, probably. probably. And you have most, so many stories like are very similar looking, like even the covers are similar looking and the names and the plots, but people are still enjoying them and like, okay, so that's, that's great. Yeah, 100%. Like, yeah, so just don't take it so seriously. Just yeah. calm down. <laughs> uh, where Ooh, are we this is a good question to ask you, actually. Okay, so I want to ask you. They say that you need to read a lot in order to improve as a writer. Do you think that a writer can improve anyway without reading a lot of books due to poor concentration and being easily distracted? What was the question? Kate's like the expert on this. Do you need to read a lot to improve as a writer? Do you think, do you need, no, 
<laughs> oh, no. That is bull. That is complete bull. So I don't read hardly at all. And um, so I read, like, nonfiction and stuff. And I typically like, like, really um, tactical and nonfiction-y type books. Like, very um, biographical things that most people would think were more on the boring side, I find like really vastly interesting. And that's like all I read when I do read, which is not very often. Like I typically take a little bit of time in the morning to like read something for like 10 minutes. And sometimes I can't even concentrate for that long, but I don't read fiction at all. I have been trying to work my way up to reading Hamlet. And I am definitely going to do that. But the last time I read a fiction book was like years ago, except for reading like beta reading your work. When Katie picks up a book off of my bookshelf, it's like watching somebody fingering a a piece of rock from outer space. I'm like, what? What is this foreign object? Yeah, so um, I never read books, especially like uh, my criteria I I said to Abby the other day is that it either needs to be um, nonfiction written 100 years ago or by Abby (laughs) because I beta read Abby's work quite a bit. But I I just I don't read very much. And it's actually very to, to like actually get to the meat of this question here. No, it doesn't have any negative impact. In fact, it has a positive impact for me. Now, I'm not saying this works for everyone because some people are like vastly inspired by reading. Like, I feel like you feel inspired by reading, kind of. Yeah, yeah, I do. And like some other people, even more so, like they get really pumped up about reading books. And if that's you, like keep reading books then. But like for me, I I do not like to have, and I don't say this in like a rude way at all, Uh, This is, like, with 100% respect for all the amazing authors out there. But, like, I don't like to have a residue of other people's writing in my mind. And, like, like I said, I'm not saying residue as, like, a bad thing. But I don't like to have – I like to be really, like, empty mentally of everything. I like to kind of just be in this state of clarity where I haven't read anything by anyone else. And I've kept that up for, like, many years. So that way, like – I just, when I sit down to write, I'm not having like anyone else's writing style cycling through my head. And it's, it's not even, the thing is, is it's not even a conscious like, oh, I'll try to sound like this person. You're going to sound like whatever you're around Mm -hmm. a lot. Like, um, if you moved to another country and lived there for like years and years and years and years and years, and there was some kind of an accent or another language, you would probably eventually pick up that language or accent especially like an accent like you're gonna pick it up and it's not even really a conscious thing it's just going to happen so I think the same thing kind of goes for like at least for me like I don't want that cycling through my head because of what I'm trying to achieve with my writing now I'm not saying like oh you should all stop reading (laughs) like it depends on what brings you joy because there's nothing wrong with someone else's style cycling through your head or if someone oh so-and-so used this phrase guess what like Artists are constantly picking things up from one another, and that is not like plagiarizing. Plagiarizing is like reading someone's stuff and copying it. Like if you find, if you're like, oh, so and so uses this word, and I really like it. It's like, yeah, that's gonna naturally happen. So if you get joy out of reading, like don't let that deter you from reading. But like reading has never really like been something that's inspired 
Um, it is not essential. It's, it's not. It's just fun. If you find it right. fun, then read. If you exactly. don't find it fun, don't. Yeah, I feel like I'm being way long-winded with this response. No, it's fine. I was just going to add that, that when I read. That's really the bottom line. Yeah, I, I was just going to add that when I read, I um, I don't even read like super frequently. Um, I was never good with like reading challenges and stuff for that reason. Um, I read way more when I was younger. Um but now that I work more, I have less time to read. Um, but when I do read, it's usually like at night before bed or something. And it's just a method of unwinding. It's mm. a way to like completely not have to think about editing as I'm reading. Even though sometimes if I'm in the middle of editing a book, I'll like subconsciously start editing somebody else's book while I'm reading their book. It's kind of annoying. Wow. <laughs> so like I would have taken that word out. Oh, I would have taken that. But anyway, um, so it helps me to kind of just relax and I find it relaxing and fun. But I don't read as like I have to make a study of fiction and what stories are. Like it's just kind of yeah. the stories that are good will stick with you naturally and inspire you, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I having guess- to study and like read a bunch of books to be a good writer. A hundred percent. And I guess that's what I was trying to say, even though I feel like I got like a little bit derailed in my thought process. <laughs> But you don't need, like you were just saying, what's actually going to make your writing pop is by just like being yourself and not feeling the need to like emulate popular writers. Like just do your own thing and actually like totally purging your mind of everyone else's work can sometimes help you see your own voice more clearly. Mm. Yeah, I agree 100%. And different things inspire different people. Some people are more inspired by books. I've always been more of a TV person. Which always comes off sounding like not as like shiny as like, oh, I love reading and read this many books. It's like <laughs> people will be like, I it's like think of this, like someone's like, Oh, you know, I read a thousand books this year, you'd be like, Wow. And but then if I was like, <laughs> I watched a thousand movies this year, you'd be like, Oh my you like, have nothing you have to do nothing in your do. life. <laughs> no, but honestly, I feel the same way about TV high quality. Yeah, high TV. quality TV, so not just different. like anything, it's not, not just, just like, like turning you know, on. The- <laughs> let's watch reality TV shows. BBC. It's okay. It's, it's basically yeah, what I'm talking about. We're talking about high quality, <laughs> high quality, well written television series yeah. and dramas, um, which you know I I have great respect for. Yeah. As as a part time screenwriter. Okay. Next question is: Hey, Abby, this is so awesome that you're doing this. I feel left out. <laughs> My question is, how do you insert the prose goal protagonist? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I don't know this um this Argo. Um the pro prose goal and emotions. How do you insert the prose goal and emotions throughout the scene without being redundant in brackets? Is it the sort of thing where you mention it once? per chapter, or every other paragraph. I know it's not an exact science, but I'm having trouble finding the balance between showing internal conflict without feeling redundant. Mm. That's a really good question, especially since I talk about internal conflict so much. Um, The thing is this. Internal conflict, your characters, your protagonist's internal conflict is really a belief system. It's so much a part of who they are that it becomes part of every single moment of their lives. Every time they are awake and thinking, it is there. 
okay? It's in the back of their mind. It is part of who they are. It's so much part of who they are that they don't even have to consciously think about it, okay? They don't have to consciously think about, like, their lie or their misbelief or whatever spelled out exactly how you want to tell the reader. And you can show your reader their misbeliefs and their internal conflict by letting it just be part, so much a part of who they are that it fuels all of their all of their goals, all of their actions. It drives their behavior. It goes into their thought process and their dialogue with other people, their communications with other people. Not like spelled out, um, but just affecting the whole way that they live and communicate with others. Um, I know that sounds kind of vague, but what I mean is you don't have to, you don't have to like tell the reader every other paragraph or every chapter even. It will be part of their actions. So that's kind of what I talk about in the, the story structure. There are moments when you do want your protagonist to think of their lie or their misbelief as a qualifier for what they do, as a reason for what they do, especially if they're explaining it to somebody else. Um, it, it comes into the decision-making process, I guess is what I'm saying. So they have this belief, they get affected by the plot, but they are the agent of change, so they have to make the decisions to act and to respond to the, to the plot and what's happening to them. And those decisions are made based on their misbeliefs, based on their internal conflict. So they can think consciously think and reason out their next move based on their misbelief and their internal conflict. But it doesn't have to be this recurring, like, mantra. You know what I mean? Right. Like, and also, and I've, I know you've talked about this before, is a lot of times, like, the, the, the lie that they believe is not even something they, like, consciously acknowledge. Yeah. So it's not even something they're being like, oh, I'm doing this because I believe this about myself. A lot of times they're doing it because, like, they, uh, they don't even really know why anymore. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and you see that a lot in, like, we're just talking about TV and movies, is a lot of times you'll know what a, what a character's internal conflict is or what their misbelief is without them having to say it, and you're not in their head, really, so you don't mm-hmm. really know what they're thinking, but based on their actions, what you see them doing, mm-hmm. you know what they believe about exactly. themselves, you know? Yeah, exactly. So based off of their behavior. Right. Um, And yeah, so, like, for a lot of like people in real life, we all have internal conflicts. And a lot of times it's not even something that you acknowledge yourself. I mean, I think you have people who are, you know, going to therapy sessions to try to figure that out because they don't know. So it's, it's this, we actually have a desire to know what it is, but a lot of times we don't. And that's why we, you know, we'll, we'll make an appointment and go talk to someone about like, well, this is how I feel, but I don't really know why. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it doesn't even have to be something. It's very realistic for your character to not know what this is. Yeah, exactly. But it is driving all of their decisions. Yes, exactly. And that's really what you would learn from a psychologist is like, well, your behavior is kind of the, the result of what right. you believe. So what is their belief? And then you can kind of reverse engineer it 
figure out their behavior, and then you can literally just show us their behavior without really going into the thing behind the thing. Like, eventually you can in in subtle ways, and it, it will come naturally as you write it, but I would err on the side of not not giving so much away. Like, err on the side of not doing enough rather than too much. Right. Because a lot of times when, when people, when writers do too much, it just comes across as, like, very un hard very hard to believe because people aren't objective about themselves they can't like read their own misbeliefs and past like they're reading a wikipedia page about themselves you know right and it just comes across feeling like inauthentic right like so um and tell me what you think of this like so for example let's say you have a main character who their lie is that like they're not enough and they need to prove themselves Mm -hmm. they most likely wouldn't be straight out saying to either you through narration or to other people like I really struggle with feeling like I'm not enough and I need to constantly prove myself like maybe they would eventually be able to even pin that down that behavior but mostly what would be more realistic feeling in most cases is to just show me how this character in every situation that happens to them, they're constantly feeling like they're coming up short and they need to prove themselves in a situation. So if they're in a situation at their job, like, okay, what would they do here to feel like they needed to prove themselves or be better than the people they're working with or make the boss see them in a certain light because they feel like they're not good enough and need to prove themselves or in their relationship or in how they talk to their friends. And so like then it's there but you don't need the character to like flat out tell you what it is yes yeah and that's really the difference between showing and telling Mm -hmm. and I did a blog post about this actually Uh, it was a guest post for part of the 100 days of sunlight blog tour but I I really want to post on my blog because it was actually I really liked the way that I had written it out um, because I used a few examples like just writing an example of a story um, and how if you tell the reader in narration, it feels so weird and just like objective and inauthentic. If you tell the reader through dialogue, like the characters saying outright, like you just said, saying outright, well, you know, I think I'm this way because I don't feel like I'm good enough and I need to prove myself. That also feels so inauthentic and weird. And then finally, I wrote an example of like, incorporating the character's backstory and misbelief into like just a thought process that he was having and recollecting like something uh, in his past when somebody put him down and made him feel like less and so like things like that you can use like those little what you kind of expertly showed in one of your a couple of your last videos in the series you're currently doing when you use the greatest showman as an example because pt barnum like in the early nowhere in the film does he like sit down and say to his wife like hey listen you know i just gotta tell you what my whole problem is is i feel like i was really my feelings were really hurt by your dad when he smacked me in the face (laughs) and told me that i was you know never gonna be more than the taylor's son and i have felt my whole life that i just need to prove myself and be better than everyone and everyone needs to like love Love and adore me so that I can feel successful. Like he, right. ne- but that is very obvious. It's so it, obvious. You're you're never confused about what this guy believes. You're like, oh my gosh, he's like, is doing everything he can to like prove that he's a 
great, successful guy. And you're never confused like, oh, you know, I don't understand really what this guy's problem is. Yeah. But he never flat out says it. He doesn't even admit it to himself. No. And that, that only adds to it because then the characters around him can see, but they also see that he doesn't acknowledge it. Yeah. And then, actually, that's such a great example of everything. But, (laughs) but like, in his aha moment is basically, you know, encapsulated in, in, uh, in the the last song or one of the last songs, and how he says how he finally comes to the realization that he spent so much time chasing the cheers of people and he forgot what all of this was for and it was for his family and so he kind of like has the aha moment during that scene and had and and because and when he comes to the realization then and like says it you're not like oh this feels weird that he can understand this about himself like because that all of these events leading up to it have led him to the aha moment that's like why I stress that so much in the three-act story structure is that it won't feel, and I think there's another question in here about the aha moment, but it won't feel inauthentic if you have all of this action leading up to the aha moment and then finally a disaster that brings your protagonist down to this dark moment and then they realize the truth. It will feel mm, so good, but I right. won't go on and on about that. Yeah, no, I was going to say, like, <laughs> someone asked us about internal conflict. It's like, oh, back for three hours. Um, yeah. All right, so next question how oh, see there there was the next aha moment thing. Okay. How do you show the aha moment without making it sound cheesy? Basically most of what we just talked about. Yeah. Cuz if you lead up to it with all of that everything that's going to happen throughout the story up to that moment that is really you're setting up the aha moment the whole time. That's kind of how I like to see it is that the aha moment is the crescendo of your story. It's the most important moment. And you spend the entire story leading up to it. <laughs> That's pretty much how I see it. It's right. like you're building this transformation for the character. And really, it is a transformation. And so you want them to see the truth yeah. and disown this lie that they have clung to for right. so long and what makes it feel natural is for the story to lead up to it for us to already see it right. rather than the character just saying it for no reason yeah so i like to look at it as the entire story what a good story really is at the heart of it is a well-told character arc um a powerful character arc is your story exactly. so that transformation is really the whole focus of the book and leading up to the transformative moment is the part that's going to make the aha moment feel natural and compelling and not cheesy yeah when it feels unnatural is when we've we haven't seen any internal conflict and then it's like oh you know i think this and you're like oh i didn't even realize that this whole time yeah um i feel like i should read one to you now because you read me several okay go for it uh next one is uh hey abby and kate i'm so excited so my questions are when you write historical fiction does it have to be 100 percent historically correct can i change things and play with the events i've never written historical fiction um but I think it really would depend on what kind of story you are writing here. Yeah. Um, if you are like, hey, you know, I want to write this story and I want it to be really historically accurate, then you're not going to want to really 
go into it without um, a really well-informed historian yeah. or um, a lot of research under your belt, um, which is a very daunting thing for a lot of writers, I think. But um, that's why on a lot of historical fiction, um, at least quite a few that I've seen, you see that it's like co-written with a historian. Yeah. But if you're like, hey, I just want to write a speculative story based off of a historical event, then I mean, yeah, there's definitely room for um, kind of taking creative license with it. Yeah. Which, I mean, you see in a lot of stuff. I mean, like, for example, uh, the the BBC miniseries um, Victoria. Um, it Victoria was a real queen, and all the people in it, most of them really existed, but there's like sub characters that didn't really exist. Right. And there's events that happen in little dramas that probably never actually occurred. Right. Because you can't know. You exactly. can't know everything. And that's really the fiction part of historical fiction. Like, if mm. you want it to be 100% accurate, write historical nonfiction. Right. Because yeah. the fiction part of it automatically makes it. A little bit speculative mm-hmm. because you can't know for sure. Like unless you're writing a biography about somebody, you can't really know for sure everything that happened. So who's to say it didn't happen, right? Or you could do something completely different with like uh, crossing over genres, and right? Make exactly. It, like, historical with fantasy. Exactly. So you could always... <laughs> Which could be yeah. fun. And then nobody's expecting it to be super accurate to historical fiction. They can yeah. enjoy it as its own thing. Right. So it's really like what you want out of it. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's yeah. tons of fictional stories that are... The places are fictional. The people are fictional. Right. The events are fictional. But it takes place in, you know, 1856. And right. they, all the, the outfits and um, the, uh, the setting and the, the objects that are being mentioned are all historically accurate. So, I mean, there you can definitely play around with that and it depends on what you want out of the experience and what you want the book to be. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there was a second part of that question. But... Some tips for relationship and friendship are, like in real life or in books? <laughs> I think she means in books. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Uh, Just tips for relationship arcs? Hmm. I think that um, a a good relationship arc is any relationship that changes considerably from the beginning to the end. Um, So even if the even if the two characters are friends at the beginning and then friends at the end, like how can you show? How can you like take them on a journey throughout the events of the story? And bring them closer together or give them uh, different understandings about each other. Like the Chronicles of Narnia kind of does that really well. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Like the Pevensey kids. Like all their relationships as siblings change and transform throughout the story. So it doesn't even need to be a romantic relationship. It can totally be friendship Mm -hmm. and sibling relationships. Um, And yeah, I, I agree. I think it's like the events and how they affect those characters and change the way that they kind of like it changes their relationship. It changes the way they view their themselves and each other. Yeah. And also just like noticing things that you personally like to see or haven't seen a lot of in fiction um, with relationships or with friendships that you're like, Oh, I wish somebody would write a friendship with this element or whatever. Like 
write that into your story. Mm-hmm. That's something that I um, I do a lot <laughs> whenever I'm reading books and I'm like, oh, there's such a lack of like this in friendships or whatever the case may be. Um, and I think I, I thought that for 100 Days of Sunlight um, when I wrote uh, Weston and Rudy's relationship because I wanted them to be like super close and like brothers. And there's like a sad lack of that I find in YA books of like really strong friendships that are just like mm, so cute and mm-hmm. like adorable, <laughs> but also like badass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, I, I really enjoyed writing their relationship for that reason because I'm like, I want to see more of this. Yeah. That's a great indicator. There's something like, oh, I wish there was more of this, you know, yeah. then write that. And I think that's what will help to make your story super dynamic. Yeah, for sure. What's the next question? It's <laughs> like awkward pause while I try to cream my neck. No. Um, hi, advice for writing a fantasy trilogy, please. Oh yeah, you you answer this one because <coughs> I everybody knows I am not versed in this. <laughs> <laughs> also, writing from multiple like three points of views. Um, yeah. So, uh, advice for writing a fantasy trilogy, like. Go for it. Um, I am a 10, 10 recommending fantasy trilogies. I think that if you enjoy the story you're writing and you're like, oh, I love these characters and I could take it further, it could be a whole series. I can see this whole world in my head. Then like, yeah, 100%. It totally should be more than one book. There's no reason why not. It's really just like writing one book, except it's really long. Um, And like... You can, there's so many different ways you can look at it. You can also look at it like, you know, each chapter is just like a short story in this like broader sense than that it's just taking place within this, this overarching world and like all these things are happening. Like if you can see it like that and you're like, oh man, I, I really want to like build something more off of this then like, yeah, do it. Um, as far as like advice for, that's really my only advice for writing a fantasy trilogy is if like you can see it vividly enough to be like I can stick with this for three books if it's something that like and I and you've kind of had this experience if you're like writing in uh, the fantasy genre for the first time or something and you're like or even if you've written fantasy before but you've never done a trilogy and you've just done one shots and you're like oh I don't I don't know if I can feel this being a trilogy but I'm gonna just push myself through it anyway like maybe it's just meant to be a one shot like so kind of feel it out when you're writing the first book and see like can I feel it being three books? Because like when I wrote the blood race, it was like, I already saw what was going to happen in book three loosely in my mind. So I already knew like where it was in relation to everything else in the universe that I'd drawn up. So it like just felt supernatural. Like I wasn't nervous about it at all. I wasn't like, oh man, how am I going to make this last three books? Like if you're asking yourself that question at the outset, like Maybe second guess it because you're you're like your body might not want to do it. It might be just like I don't really want to write three books. So kind of just like listen to that writer intuition and see like what your what your body like wants to do. Yeah, for sure. I I've never written a series. I haven't yet written a series, but I have yet. been outlining a few series for a while now. Um, so I have plotted them and like structured them. And I think it's, it's definitely good. It depends on like what kind of writer you are. If you're uh, more of a pantser, then yeah, like take just like going for it 
and then seeing where it takes you and how you feel with it. Um, but also if you're more of an outliner or more of a plotter, you like to plan ahead more, uh, maybe make a sketch of how would three books look like bullet point, what's going to happen in each one? Where can I see this going? And just see if you have the kind of, if you have enough material for three books and also if you feel excited for that Mm -hmm. idea. The excitement's like a huge part of it. Like I think a lot of people overlook that and like think like, oh, well, this is like on paper, this is perfect and I can intellectually understand how this would be good. But if you're not like excited about it, like, I mean, you have to be excited about it. Yeah. You know, because otherwise it's like going on a first date and there's like no spark and you're just like <laughs> checking your rocks, checking your rocks and wondering when it's going to be over. Like that's yeah. what kind of relationship is that going to be? It's not going to be fun. Yeah. You, you don't want to go on the second you date. You have to love You have book. to like be like, I can't wait for this to, to, for, to sit down and write this. Now, I'm not saying you'll feel like that every single second because I think we all go through times where we're like, eh, I don't feel like writing. Like that's no big deal. But I mean like you have to chronically be like, oh, I am over in a, in a broader sense like – I am, like, chronically obsessed with it. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Even if you have, like, bad days. That's like having, like, a really great relationship and you get into a fight every once in a while, but then it's, like, better. Yeah. (laughs) Versus, like, you don't even want to go on the second date. So it's, like, (laughs) it's, like, totally different. So if you have that overarching love for it and you're, like, oh, yeah, I'm excited about this. So if you feel that way about the idea of writing three books, then, like, that's probably something you should do. Mm. (laughs) You could do, like, a whole writing system based off of, like, relationships with people Mm -hmm. comparing your relationship with your writing with relationships with people yep determining what book you're gonna love the most (laughs) yeah exactly but you do have to love it and like i talked about that once in a video um deciding what book to write next and how you know if you have like a bunch of ideas you love them all you want to write them all but which one do you write first that's the big question and for me it's i'm gonna write the one that i'm most in love with right now which is not all of them. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And also most passionate about, like, the themes and the messages. Right. And the vibe. Just everything about it. You have to love everything about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, like, there will definitely be certain time periods where you'll be like, wow, I'm, like, super into this now. Like, you've yeah, probably you experienced, like, too, yeah, like, being, like, into, like, super into, like, one thing yeah. for, like, a while. And yeah. then you're, like, out of it. Yeah, exactly. Or um, in, like a certain vibe of a book yeah. too. Like if it's it's getting to be summer, so a lot of people are probably like looking for, I don't know, getting more excited to write something more lighthearted maybe and yeah. like summer fun beach read. Not everyone, of course. But it, it gets you more in the mood for that versus mm-hmm. like in the winter when it's all like cold and snowy and gloomy or rainy and you feel like more moody and like you want to write something intellectual and (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) something deep and literary so you go through moods at least I do I Mm. uh, my moods are based on the weather as you can tell yeah, <laughs> the weather has a lot to do. Like, that could be another episode. Like, yeah. I, I write best How when it's, like, rainy, raining or snowing. Mm. Comment below if you're watching on YouTube. Tell me if, if, if you write better when it's raining or snowing because I notice a significant difference. Mm. Really? What is it? 
I'm curious now. Just like when it's raining or snowing, I'm like, oh, oh raining or snowing? Yeah. Like slash? Yeah. Okay. I thought you meant like when it's raining, you notice a significant difference than when it's snowing. Oh, <laughs> As you're writing. Yeah, no, like totally. Like snow, it's like <laughs> but really it is a amped. different mood. Rain, it's like a little bit amped. <laughs> no. It is a different mood. Yeah, it is. Snow, it makes you so feel like, like you're in Narnia and you just want to like write Narnia. Yeah. It's like fa- snow is like really <laughs> fantasy. Rain is more moody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, rain is like literary. <laughs> Rain is literary. Yeah. Snow is fantasy. Yes. And then like sunny days are like contemporary. Yeah. Like fun, autumn like, comedy. Autumn is like kind of like folk goth. Yeah. Literary. <laughs> okay. We're getting like totally carried away here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's the last question for this segment. We're going to wrap it up here because we've been talking for a while answering your awesome questions. Thank you. Everyone. Thank you so much to everyone who asked these awesome questions. So be sure to check out part two of this question asking session that's going to be released not the following week from this one, but the next week as we head into summer, things are picking up and getting busier for a lot of people, us included, working on our respective writing projects. Abby has a lot going on. I have a lot going on in the writing atmosphere, and we've been producing some pretty significantly long episodes here, which I think for a lot of you guys take multiple like sessions of listening to like fully kind of like listen to everything we're saying here. So we're going to start spacing these out a little bit more, not by a lot, just every other week. So these this is going to be for the for right now anyway, as we head into the summer, a um, every other week type of thing. So check out part two will be uploaded, um, not next week, but the week following. So check that out on that following Monday to see some more of these questions answered. It might be one of yours. It might be one of your questions. Yeah. So thank you guys so much for asking these great questions, for listening to the podcast. Thank you so much for supporting us by listening, and also a huge shout-out to our patrons. Thank you so much for your support. It means a lot to us. If you want to support us on Patreon, you can check that out at patreon.com slash the Kate and Abby show. Also, feel free to send us a message with your thoughts on this episode or leave a comment below in the YouTube video. We would love to see you down there in the comments. Share it with a friend. Tell someone you love about it. (laughs) Share some fun writing creative vibes. It's always good. Okay. Thank you guys so much for listening. Stay stoked. And rock on.